We are glad to have you with us. Uh, our practice here in Athens Bible Church, not all churches do this, and we don't always do it, but our, our, our regular practice is to take a book of the Bible and teach all the way through it. Now you're, this Sunday you're on this verse, next Sunday you're on the next section, next Sunday you're on the next section, until we get done. And we are in Luke chapter 11 this morning. And so if something in this text steps on your toes, it's not me, don't get mad at me, get mad at Luke. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not picking on you. I used to think when, when, when I first started coming out learning the Bible that Pastor Osball had spies on me and he was picking on me and it was just the Holy Spirit, it wasn't him, he didn't know. And so, uh, but anyway, uh, we are in Luke chapter 11 and so invite you to this chapter we've already been here a little bit and we taught the lord's prayer in the first part of this chapter and uh, then we moved on to last week we were looking at uh, that the heavenly father will give the holy spirit to them that ask him and and why we need the holy spirit because of the spiritual battle we're in uh you don't bring a knife to a gunfight, right? And so if you try to battle spiritual warfare in your own power, you're going down. It doesn't matter how, how much you know or how much you think you know. You're going down. And so we got to have, we, we mentioned last time, you have to have the uh, Spirit of God to deal in spiritual warfare. And Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not people. It's not people out there. It's not a human thing. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. That means people. But against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places, four different kind of fallen angels. <laughs> so you want to start wrestling with some angels? You better have some a bit spiritual power to do that. The Bible's opening up things we don't even think about until we're a Christian, and often we don't even think about when we're Christian. We think, oh, that person's so hard out there. They're hard-hearted. And, uh, or uh, this situation's so difficult. Uh, we get, when we open up the Scriptures and we see what it is, Satan blinds the minds of those that are lost. Lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine into them. I can't open somebody's eyes that's blinded by Satan. I couldn't open my own eyes. I was raised in a Christian home. My mind was blinded. So no amount of teaching and human effort is going to open your eyes of your understanding. And it's, it's just the way it is. And when someone's saved, they're delivered out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's the day you're, you, you're out of his, Satan's jurisdiction and into the Lord's. And Paul understood that uh, very well, and he taught that very well in so many places. And we looked at some of those last time and I was going to look at some this time I'm not going to because I got too much more to say the whole world lies in the wickedness it's not that you're special the whole world lies in the wickedness wicked one and until we get saved we may not be demon possessed what this section's dealing with a demon casting out that Jesus was doing or a, a demon as we mentioned last time overrides your personality it's not even, he's talking for you. You say, well, my wife does that. No. No. I'm talking about the demon overrides your personality. 
So whenever you see demons in the New Testament, they're in control, not the person they're possessing. They're talking for them. It's a terrible condition, awful thing to be demon-possessed. We don't have the gift of discernment. I've never cast out a demon, nor do I expect to. Apostles did that. Jesus did that. That's out of my box. But there are such a thing as people who are demon-possessed even today. But you don't have to be in demon possession to be in trouble. The whole, the whole world is, lies in the wicked one. And the, Ephesians says, before we were Christians, you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And we walked according to the power of the prince of the air. We were under his deception, even if we weren't under his possession. He's a liar from the beginning and a very good one. And he hadn't stopped lying since the Garden of Eden. And sometimes he still tells the same ones. But, and people buy into it. I bought into it. You bought into it. Paul bought into it. Everybody buys into it. There's nothing worse than to be under a lie that you believe is the truth. And the, the deliverance from that darkness, the deliverance from that is salvation. And there's where this comes in quite a bit. Now, let's go back to Luke 11 now and let's start looking at it. We're talking about uh, an amazing miracle, really, in verse 14. Luke 11, 14. Luke 11, 14. Now, last time I was emphasizing that Christians need to have the Holy Spirit in order to help people with the gospel and deal with people. We can't, we can't do it in our own power. If we do, we're going to fail. But this time, I'm going to talk about the people we're trying to deal with. This time, I want to emphasize their issues so that we can recognize them. Don't get mad at them. Don't get mad at them when they get mad at you. Pity them. Love them. And so this is, the Bible will shed light on things. And let's let's just look at this. And he was casting out a demon, and it was dumb, which doesn't mean he had a low IQ. It means he couldn't talk. So this this man had a physical problem called by a, a demonic spirit. There's plenty of people can't talk that aren't demon possessed or can't walk or can't whatever, and it's just a biological issue. But this biological problem was caused by a demon. They like to torture people. They like to torment people. They get pleasure in it. And so. Jesus was casting out a demon, and it was a, it was a demon that was causing dumbness. And it came to pass when the demon was gone out, the dumb spoke, and the people marveled. It was a stunning thing. Everybody knew this guy couldn't talk. This wasn't like one of those fake TV preachers where, you know, they pick people out of the audience, and they got a fake guy, and he gets out of the wheelchair and all that. It was, this was a real miracle. It was a really stunning thing. And everyone was amazed. Everyone was amazed. Every single person marveled. It, there was, it, this was totally undeniable. Something supernatural had happened. There wasn't one person in that crowd that said, that's ah, fake. He was a plant. You can say that about some TV preachers. They put people in the audience. It's all controlled and all that. But no one even suggested this was a fake. This is a trick. Or this person was not really possessed. By a demon. They knew it. They all knew it. They'd known that man. The whole crowd knew it. They all knew his, pre- his previous physical condition 
And I believe they all knew they didn't, re they didn't have that crazy materialistic, reductionistic view of the West that there was no such thing as demons. They understood there was, and they understood this man uh, was demon-possessed. And it says, when Jesus did that, they all were amazed. That word amazed means to marvel. The Greek word means to marvel, to be amazed at something extraordinary, to be astonished. Greek dictionary uh, definition of that word. The whole crowd was. There wasn't one single person there that wasn't amazed. Every single person there had the same initial reaction. There wasn't one, and, and um, if you'd have been there, Christian or non-Christian, if you'd have been there 2,000 years ago, this would have been your reaction. You say, oh no, it wasn't. Well, there were people just like you in that crowd. And they were amazed. This was so obvious, so stunning, the whole crowd amazed. This was not, this was not a crowd that was, um, was sympathetic to Jesus necessarily. Some of them were, some of them weren't. But all of them were amazed. It was an undeniable, visible, supernatural confrontation that produced a visible difference in front of everyone in that place. They were amazed. All of them. Every eye got big. Every mouth dropped open. Every heart skipped a beat. Whoa! <laughs> it was a stunning display of, super, of the supernatural. And Leon Morris said of Jesus, He exercised power over evil spirits and there does not seem to have been it does not seem to have been doubted even by his enemies. Now, when you can amaze your enemies, there were enemies there. Did, Jesus didn't play it safe and just teach around people like him. There were people hated him in that crowd, and they were amazed. Everybody was amazed. So it's kind of interesting what happened and um, fascinating. I did a long word study in Luke on uh, this word amazed and different people who were amazed in the book of Luke and it's quite a long one. And the Lord Jesus amazed everyone there. And then I did one on the book of Acts which is the second volume of Luke and everybody was amazed there. And when Jesus does a miracle it's something to be amazed at. When a TV preacher does it, you think, ah, what a fake. But he, he was amazed. When the disciples, when that man was crippled and his whole life, everybody knew it. The guy was over 40 years old. He'd never walked. He was born crippled. And Peter and John uh, were used of the Lord to heal him in front of everybody, in front of thousands of people. And people ran together and they were all excited. And Peter said, what are you looking at us for as if we by our own power made this man walk? In the name of Jesus, this happened. He did it. We're just his channels. And then they went to the Sanhedrin who crucified him. And they said, these men have done a mir that <laughs> amazing miracle and we can't deny it. This was 
this was an amazing thing that they marveled at. They didn't blow it off. They knew it happened. They hated it it happened. They didn't want it to happen. They wanted to cover it up. They couldn't deny it. That's, that's the way all of Jesus' miracles were, especially his resurrection, Luke 24, 12, and 41. People were amazed then too. That was really kind of amazing. They all marveled. Now among those that were amazed or marveled, there was a difference. And this is what begins to be very interesting. Lord Jesus certainly got everybody's attention. But among the people that were amazed, it says in verse 15, but some of them. That means some of them that were amazed. And then verse 16 said, and others. So among those that were amazed, there were two groups among the amazed, if I could just put it that way. There were some of them in verse 15, and then there were others. The Greek word heteros, it means they took a different position. So among the marveled, there was this difference. And uh, watch what it was, verse 15. Some of them said, He cast out demons. We can't deny that. The demon came out and he did it. We can't deny the miracle happened. He did it. Nobody said he didn't do it. Nobody. This group hated Jesus. They would have denied it if they could. They said he cast out demons through Beelzebub, the chief of the demons. Beelzebub is Satan. It's a a pejorative term for Satan. And they said, yeah, I cast him out all right, but he cast him out through the power of Satan. They were saying Jesus is Satan-possessed. He's doing the work of Satan. He, he's got power over demons, but only because of Beelzebub, the chief of demons. Now, that was an assertion. An assertion is not a proof. People can assert all kinds of stuff. People can say all kinds of stuff. People can say, Pastor Hickson robbed, robbed the ba- Hockey Valley Bank. Anybody can say that. Where's the proof for it? I wouldn't rob that bank. I got money in that bank. <laughs> but, you know, but people can say stuff. Anybody can say stuff. Politicians say all kinds of stuff against other politicians. So much that people say, how can you know if a politician's lying? And the answer is, if his lips are moving. So he's lying. People say stuff. And they were saying this. Other people, they knew that was <laughs> they knew that wasn't true. These other people, they couldn't buy into that at all. They were the others of the amazed. But notice what they said. Others testing him sought of him a sign from heaven. They knew that first position, calling Jesus Satan possessed and that he was casting out demons with Satan. <laughs> that's, that's so far out. We can't buy into it. So we're not going to buy into that. Our position is we need more evidence. This was true. But, you know, maybe he's just a prophet, not the Messiah. This was, this was a miracle. But maybe there is something to this guy. But we're not going to be so crazy as to say he is demon, Satan possessed. We're, we're going to take the position that Yep, this was real. We can't deny that. But we need more evidence. 
that's that's what's going on here. So I want us to think about these two groups, these two groups, and think about people today that are very similar to these two groups. Um, R.K. Hughes said, Everyone knew it was a miracle, though Jesus' enemies found a way to mix in some, some bitter with the sweet. Unbelief loves to undermine clear evidence of God's love and power in, in this case, in the form of slander. It was calculated blasphemy of immense perversity. He's writing about the first thing. Pretty bold person to call Jesus someone who works under the power of the devil. Another writer, Philip Ryken, is very helpful. He said, all these people agreed that Jesus cast out a demon. No doubt about it. The question was, had he done, how had he done it? And why some responded with antagonism, claiming that this was really the work of the devil, and others responded with skepticism, demanding some clear sign from God. Antagonism, skepticism. That was the two ways. Well put. Now, that's what we're dealing with. And this kind of skepticism may seem, the second one, may seem less evil than outright antagonism, but it's no less dangerous. Whether we deny Jesus altogether or simply dismiss Him and say, well, I just don't know yet. I need more evidence. But that's what the, the second group was saying. We need more evidence. We do not trust him by faith. In fact, the skepticism, Riken said, may actually be closer to God, may not be closer to God than the antagonist. Many people who say they are skeptics have no sincere desire to know God at all. They are only using their skepticism as an excuse for avoiding the hard realities of sin, death, and judgment. I can't tell you how many people have said, I don't believe the Bible because of this. I don't believe the Bible because of that. And they get into that thing. And often I don't even argue with them about that. I don't even think about that. I just say, okay, you say you don't believe the Bible because of this. If I can answer your question, will you get on your knees and believe in Jesus Christ right now? Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, then that's not, that, that's, that problem is not your problem. That's an excuse. It's not a reason. You see, sometimes we can get drawn into things by people. They're just blowing out excuses. But you can answer. You can spend seven weeks talking to them and answer every question, their every objection, and they still are not going to do it. I learned that back at OU when I was at a. Baptist Student Union, Union meeting, we were practicing sharing our faith with other people, and some we had to role play. One person played the unbeliever, and the other person played the believer, and they chose me to play an unbeliever. So these believers are trying to convince me, and I'm just throwing out objection after objection after objection, and throwing out another one, throwing out another one, and I thought, oh, that's how it works. That's a very easy game to play. And so this second group there's, it's, it's not like the antagonistic people are really bad people and they're really hard and the skeptic people are not quite so bad. 
No, it's just a different it's just a different display of the human fallen heart. So Riken talked about the antagonistic and the skeptical, and I it's a very good thing. And it's by no means uncommon for people to to revert to slander when honest opposition is helpless. I didn't say that somebody else did, but I quoted. I can't beat these folks, so I'm just going to play the skeptic game. My own outline of this is, the first group is the publicly abusive. Calling Jesus in the power of the devil, working in the power of the devil is about as abusive as you can get. The second group are the passive-aggressive. You know that term, passive-aggressive? Passive-aggressive, in a dictionary definition, is indirect resistance to the demands of others uh, and an avoidance of direct confrontation as in procrastinating uh, uh, or misplacing important materials. I don't want to fight with my boss. I'm just not going to do what he says. (laughs) I'm not going to get around to it. I'm not going to fight with my husband. I'm just going to not get around to doing what he has. Passive-aggressive. And the dictionary says, the pattern of passive hostility and and avoidance of direct communication in actions where some action is actually, some some action is socially customary is typical of passive-aggressive. Now, Let's watch Jesus dealing with both these groups. He doesn't just talk to one, he talks to them both. Verse 15. Some said he cast out demons through the Beelzebub, the chief of demons. Others, testing him, sought of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them. He's talking to them both, but he's really dealing with the first group in verse 16 down to 28. And he picks up the second group in 29. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. A house divided against a house falls. If Satan is divided against Satan, how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons through the Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out demons, no doubt... The kingdom of God's come upon you. I'm just going to stop right there. That finger of God. We mentioned it last time. Remember the book of Exodus? And this, I want you to go back to Exodus this morning. We didn't do it. We just quoted it. Go back to Exodus, the second book in the Bible, chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. Uh, when Moses went down to Egypt, he was the first man, the first man in history to be given a message by God for other people. His job to bring at the burning bush was to give other people God's message. And he said, how are they going to believe me? Nobody's seen me for 40 years. How are they going to believe that you're sending me? And God gave him three miracles to do. Remember that? And all of that started, and then there were more miracles. There were ten plagues on Egypt. And when Moses got down there, the Egyptian magicians withstood him. Every time Moses did something, they copied it. 
And who knows how they did it, whether it was demonic or magician or whatever. But every time Moses does something, they copied it. You see it over and over and over again in Acts chapter 8. Some of them you just kind of wonder, well, how'd they do that? But in verse 16, they got to the place where they couldn't copy it. They couldn't fake it anymore. Whether they were faking or using demons to do what they were doing, we don't know. But the magician's bag of tricks was empty at this point. And they say to Pharaoh, look verse 16, The Lord said to Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out your rod, Smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. God fights in very interesting ways. Frogs, lice, <laughs> flies. He's got a big army. And it became lice and man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And the, emissions, the, the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice. This always makes me funny, makes me laugh. Moses does something and then they copy him. As if they didn't have enough lice already. <laughs> you know, God brings frogs and then they say, okay, we'll do frogs. And So whatever they did, it seemed like they were doing it too. And um, so whether they were really doing it by satanic power or whether it was just some magician's trick. But in verse 19, they ran out of things to do. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. These depraved, demonic, satanic, controlled men, overwhelmed. We can't copy this with our satanic powers or our magician powers. This is the finger of God. That's the phrase Jesus used in Luke 11. If I, with the finger of God, cast out demons, remember what he said? This is the finger of God. I'm doing something that definitive. I'm doing something is incontrovertibly a miracle from God. Every Jew knew that terminology, finger of God. They knew what Moses meant. They understood this was a miracle from God. And that's what Jesus said. He used that terminology everyone knew. Now, this brings us to another subject. The Messiah was supposed to do miracles. And the powers of the age to come were to be displayed by him when he came. In the age to come, he's going to lock up Satan. So demon casting out is illustrating what he's going to do on a greater level. And lame, healing the lame, and raising the dead, and all the other stuff, is just a, a prophetic, prophetic foreshadowing of his ultimate responsibilities. And Jesus said, this is the finger of God. Everybody ought to know this. Everybody ought to believe this. Everybody ought to see this. If Egyptian magicians, depraved mag Egyptian magicians, could say it, you ought to be able to say it. And the message was authenticated by the miracles. Jesus' miracles was not just showing off. It was a biblical authentication of his powers as the end time Messiah. I'm doing it now to show you a little bit of, on a smaller scale of what it will be then. When I raise the dead and when there's no sickness and all this other stuff. 
And the Jews were taught to look for a miracle worker to confirm their message. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 13. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This was a very clear passage in their minds. Most Americans have never read Deuteronomy, but the Jews did. They'd had it memorized. Deuteronomy 13. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder, a wonder would be like a miracle. Somebody shows up and they do something miraculous. And the sign or the wonder come to pass wherever he spoke to thee, saying, Let's go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God tests you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you'll serve him and cleave to him. In other words... What God says in his word, it trumps what miracle workers do. If they say, let's go follow this God or that God, they might have done a miracle, but maybe it's a satanic miracle. Don't listen to it. The message is more important than the miracle. The miracles authenticated the message and the messenger, but the message had to have continuity and connection with the previous thing. God doesn't contradict himself. What God says in the Old Testament is, is what, it's, what he says in the New Testament are connected. <coughs> God's not incoherent. So that's the picture here. <coughs> Very important background in verse 5. And that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust you out of the way of the Lord commanded you to walk in, so shall you put away evil from the midst of you. That's not for today. We don't kill false teachers. This is the church age. But that was an Old Testament kingdom. They were demanded. They had to execute them, and they did. In fact, I believe Jesus was probably executed on this passage, except it was misused. Because when Jesus did a miracle, people worshipped the God of Israel. They didn't worship some other God. It's, it's often a mystery. Now, let's go back and get what Jesus said here, back in Luke 11. So Jesus is giving a rather uh, full answer here to the, the publicly abusive people. And later he'll give one to the passively aggressive people. To the publicly abusive people, he said, you better get fact-checked. <laughs> this, is, this is fake news. This is propaganda. You, you aren't, you, you, you're not even thinking right, and you're certainly not saying right. One writer said, opposition to Jesus regularly upsets men's logic. And they often put forth what is absolutely unsound as being convincingly sound. I found that to be true. Really smart people can say some really dumb things. And I can tell they're smarter than me, but that doesn't keep them from being really stupid. 
when it comes to spiritual things. And so Jesus is going to upset all this. And so in verse 17, he knowing their thoughts said, Every kingdom divided against itself has brought the desolation. You said, I thought Abraham Lincoln said it. He got it from Jesus. Every kingdom divided against itself has brought the desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons through Beelzebub. What you're saying is inconceivable. The devil's not going to fight himself. He's not going to friendly fire his own demons through me. It's inconceivable. Second, it's inconsistent. If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. In the first century, there were actually other people who practiced exorcisms. They weren't Roman Catholic priests. There weren't any Roman Catholic priests then. But there were other people that practiced exorcisms. And the Jews of the time considered them legitimate. And if you'd ask them, well, what, how about this over here? Well, yeah, that was, that was of God. That was of God. That was of God. That was of God. God was doing it through that person against Satan. But when it came to Jesus, oh no, that was the devil. So Jesus says it's, it's, it's inconsistent. You're not being consistent. You are, you are saying things about me you would never say about anybody else. And then he says it's incoherent. But if I with the finger of God cast out demons, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man armed keeps his palace, his goods are in peace. Satan's the strong man here, and people are his goods. He's the strong man. Every human being on this planet are his goods. He doesn't treat us very right, very well, but he considers us his. When God asks Satan, where you been? Oh, I've been down there on planet Earth, walking up and down in it. I own it down there, that planet. I'm the prince of this world, and I run stuff. Have you considered my servant Job? Not your servant, Job. So the strong man is keeping his goods. And he's armed. He's a strong man and he's armed. He's armed, heavily armed, against uh, anybody taking anything away. There's a really interesting word here, just like be armed to the teeth. It's like someone is, you know, they, they got every kind of armament possible. You, you attack them, they're coming after you. And so Jesus said, this is totally incoherent. This is the way it works. Remember, Jesus knows more about demons than anybody. He knows more about demons and the devil than the demons and the devil know about themselves. And he calls Satan, the prince of this world, the strong man. He keeps his palace and his goods are in peace. Now, it's a terrible peace, but he likes it that way. Everybody is under his thumb since Adam and Eve. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him, who's the one stronger than the devil? The Lord Jesus Christ, God's stronger than angels. He made them. So it's not even close. But when a stronger than he, that's Jesus, comes on him, 
overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. That's just what Jesus was doing. He took from him some spoils. That man was one of them. And this wasn't just one case. All through the Gospels, Jesus is doing this. Casting out demons, casting out demons, and so forth. So he's saying this is incoherent. This doesn't even make sense what you're saying that I'm doing. And that's intolerable. Verse 23. He that's not with me is against me. Life is very serious. It's very serious. It's serious as a heart attack. It's more serious than a heart attack. You can recover from a heart attack sometimes. But if you're against Christ, you're in trouble. He that's not with me. Oh, I don't hate Jesus, but I just don't. I just ignore him. He that's not with me is against me. And he that gathers not with me scatters. What an awesome passage. And then he talks about it's incorrigible what you're doing. You people are very content with getting evil out with others but you're not putting anything in. And that doesn't work. And that's what he says in this marvelous parable. It's a parable against self-reformation. What happens when people get nervous about spiritual things? They try to reform themselves. I'm going to stop doing it. I'm not going to do that anymore. Their whole religion becomes, I I used to do this, but I don't do it anymore. Uh, Now, of course, that's never true because you might not do some things, but there's other things that you'll do (laughs) that you haven't been doing, but even as a Christian, right? You'll slip here and there. But Jesus describes this as emptying the house of the demon. The demon lives in the house, the demon's gone, and then the demon comes, the house is empty, it's all cleaned up. You cleaned up your life. Then the demon says, oh, I'm coming back, and he takes seven more worse than himself. And the last end is worse than the first. Self-reformation is a very dangerous process. It invites ending up worse can't save ourselves. Buddhism is based on autosoterism, saving yourself, making yourself better. It hates the idea of somebody else saving you. You're responsible to save yourself. But what Jesus is saying here is that is a no-go position. And you just end up with a worse situation than before, verse 20 and 22. So our Lord completely just blows these people away. And it's uh, amazing what he does there. And then verse 27, it came to pass as he spoke these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. And he said, Yea, blessed are the those that hear the word of God and keep it. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, Now he's working on the other group. The passive-aggressive group. Who wanted a sign? Look, casting out demons is good, but we need something more. We need something else than what you've just given us. We want, we want a sign from heaven. You give us a sign from heaven. 
This is something you did down here. You give us a sign from heaven. This is this this may be real, but it's not enough. Maybe you're just a prophet, not the Messiah. If you give us a sign from heaven, we're in. And that's people were saying, not enough evidence. If I have more evidence, I become a Christian. Now, for some people, that's true. They just don't know anything. They've never even heard the gospel. But for other people, they, this is just putting things off. It's a procrastination. And so when he spoke to the people, they were gathered together. He said, this is an evil generation. We don't need demons to be evil. We're pretty good at that ourselves. This is an evil generation. Uh, I don't need a devil to make me sin. I do pretty good on that on my own. And this particular group that wanted to sign, he considered that very wicked. When God speaks and it's very plain, we're expected to respond. This is an evil generation that seeks a sign. And there'll be a no sign given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Well, Jonah the prophet, he was dead a long time ago. That's the guy that went in the fish for three days. Everybody thought he was dead. He shows up alive in Nineveh. And then the capital of Assyria, the Nazis of the ancient Near East, got saved. Because they thought this guy was dead and he's alive. This is a reference to Jesus' coming resurrection. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be to this generation. You want a sign? You're going to get one. And that one is when I come out of the grave and go back to heaven. (laughs) The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with the men of this generation, condemn them, for she came from the farthest parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and greater than Solomon is here. I'm greater than Jonah. I'm greater than Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. He was the wisest king. Jonah had the greatest miracle of any prophet. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and a greater than Jonah is here. Credible stuff. He just blows these people away. Um, and then you know what happens? We, we can't teach this today. A Pharisee invites him to dinner. That, that really made me laugh. I was thinking about this uh, all the other Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons, and you invite him to dinner? Would you invite somebody to dinner that you thought was satanically possessed? It's really funny. But so this guy invites him to dinner, and then the Lord unloads on him. Very fascinating. All this is very, very interesting, very, very fascinating. No greater insult could have been given Jesus than they gave him, saying he was Satan-possessed. That's what happened to Judas. Judas was Satan-possessed, John 13, 27. Judas didn't have a demon. He had Satan. And now they're saying that's what's true of Jesus. Amazing stuff. All right, let's apply it. we got all this information now. What do we do with it? Let's make some applications. Thinking about Jesus casting out that demon from that poor man. And demon possessed people are in the Bible are to be pitied. They're not to be blamed. 
They're to be pitied, and Jesus took pity on them. But ministering to the suffering uh, leads to opportunity for testimony. When Jesus did something good for this man, there was a conflict, but Jesus got the message out. We Christians need to do what? We can't cast out demons, but we can do works of benevolence. We can find ways to be kind to people. We're supposed to be created in Christ Jesus to good works. We're not saved by good works, but created in Christ Jesus to good works. God's ordained that we should walk in them. Jesus went about doing good. We should go about doing good. And we're to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith, but not only the people of the household of faith. That means even non-Christians, we should do what we can to help them in this way or that. We should be do-gooders in a good sense. You know, there's do-gooders in a bad sense. They're proud of what they do and they're trying to get to heaven by their works. Mm, Don't need that. But we should be humbly going about doing good. Ministry to hurting people often leads to opportunity for testimony. It did for Jesus. It can do it for us. Sometimes we think, well, nobody's listening to me. Well, maybe you're not doing enough good. (laughs) You know, you get a platform, you get a stage for something to do. Second, our actions and our words will often be misconstrued and we will be maligned no matter how much good we do. You're never going to sit. You're never going to satisfy the fallen heart. That wife's trying to win the husband, or that husband's trying to win the wife, or that parent that tries to win the win the child. They're always going to find fault with you. Just get used to it. It's going to happen. Our words and our lives will be misconstrued, and we will be maligned. And the incident here was very compelling, and highly effective. I want to go back one year. And if you go back and you study the gospel synoptically, you'll find out this happened a little over a year before this. Go back, hold your place here and go to Matthew 12. Same thing happened in Galilee a year earlier that's happening in Judah. Remember, Judas in the south here. Same thing. Almost exactly the same. Only this one was, he wasn't just dumb, he had a double physical problem. Matthew twelve twenty-two. Then was brought to him one possessed with a demon, blind and dumb. He wasn't just dumb, he was blind and dumb. Couldn't talk, couldn't see. That's really misery. You're a prisoner in your own body. And he healed him inasmuch as the blind and dumb both spoke and saw All the people were amazed. All the people were amazed. By the way, this is a different word for amazed than the other one. This means to be surprised or almost out of your mind. (laughs) They were just absolutely stunned at what Jesus did. And they said, is not this the son of David? The common people were saying, isn't this the Messiah? Look what he just did. This one miracle on this one occasion was causing people to think about Jesus in a new way. But then what happened in verse 24? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons, but by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That's where it started. And a year later, they're doing the same thing. They made a false assertion about Jesus. 
to counter the conviction of the people that were being intellectually awakened and were starting to ask questions to each other. And they made this false claim about Jesus then, and they're doing it again. Just like politicians make up things on the other guys so they can win an election. They want to keep power, so they're just blowing stuff out about Jesus. Our actions and our words will often be misconstrued. We'll be maligned. Everybody that serves the Lord will suffer persecution. And we, we just gotta, and things said apart from the evidence. By the way, Matthew 12, Jesus had the exact same answer and the exact same discussion with that group that he has, will have down in our section a year later. Haven't you done that? <laughs> Those of us that witness, you, we hear the same old stuff. Where did Cain get his wife? Uh, how many have never have heard somebody say that? Or what about the people who've never heard the gospel? Or you just believe because you were brought up that way? Or there's so many mistakes in the Bible? They've never read it, but they believe there is. And or the God of the Bible is immoral. That's that's kind of a new one, but people are saying that today. But when that's that's the third application here. We hear the same stuff all the time when we're doing personal work. And we should expect it. And we and sometimes you think, I gotta answer this again. <laughs> Turn back to Luke chapter twelve. Fourth application. Luke chapter 12 and verse 8. I'm moving ahead to chapter 12 just for a moment. And this application is when you're talking to a non-Christian, this is a life or death moment. Very serious stuff. I read about a surgeon when they were getting ready to, to any surgery. He always said the same thing right before he made the first cut to everybody standing around, everybody helping him. This is life or death. Well, you cut somebody open, it can't be that, right? Minor surgery can turn into death. That surgeon said that, every surgeon. And when we have the privilege of talking to somebody about their soul and about Jesus, it really is life or death. They might harden their heart and that just get harder. Or that, you know, it's, it's a serious thing. We're a savor of life to life and death to death is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. And who's sufficient for these things? And so in, in Luke chapter 12, the same stuff's happening again. And Jesus said in verse 8, I say to you, whoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man confess before the angels of God. But he that denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it'll not be forgiven. We're not teaching on that yet. We will. But in Matthew, he says, all manner of sin and blasphemy can be forgiven men, except this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's a shocking statement. In fact, I get comfort out of that. All manner of sin. Oh, thank you, Lord. I did about a thousand of those and they can all be forgiven. Not this one. This is life or death. 
And so, saying Jesus does, does his miracles by the power of the devil is rejecting Jesus very graphically, right? And ignoring clear evidence. And we'll, we'll get to that on another sermon, but I think it's very important to see how serious it is when we talk to somebody. We don't know whether this will be the last time we talk to them. And they'll be in eternity. I've told this before, but there was a man who had some mental stress. He came to me, begged him to go to the doctor. You need to go to the hospital. You need to get help. Wouldn't do it. Came again. You need to go to the hospital. I gave him the gospel. But you, you, don't, you need to go to the hospital and get some medicine. He wouldn't do it. He seemed a little better. I talked to him. I think it was the third time. And uh, he said, I'm not going to accept the Lord now. I'll do it when I get home. He went home, found his wife with another man, shot her, shot the man, and shot himself. Just awful. Putting off even for a little bit, the opportunity that God gives you. And this crowd's waiting for evidence. We want to see a sign for you. They're not abusive. They're not openly hostile, but they're passively aggressive. And very important. They think it's safer to be that way. Oh, I couldn't go that far being saying Jesus got the devil. I would never say that. That's scary. They just put it off. I need more evidence. I'm not ready. And, of course, nobody should make a profession just because they're scared. But people should respond to evidence. And God's faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not. It's not a leap in the dark. Soren Kierkegaard said that. He's wrong. Faith is a step in the light of God's revelation. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We're born again by the word. You don't get born again unless you open this book. It might be through something a preacher says. It might even be better if something you read. It's kind of important to not be one of those people that 2 Timothy 3 says, ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Need more evidence. Need more evidence. Need more evidence. And you never get around to it. Because you really don't want to believe. You've got another agenda. You've got something you want to do, and you know if you're a Christian, you should quit it, or you'll get convicted about it, so you just put it off. I did that. I did that. Even as a young man, I did that. Knew the gospel was true. I knew it. Put it off. Why? Well, put it off because I was fallen. It was sinful. Almost done. Jesus' sixth, Jesus' work of publicly delivering one person and changing that person dramatically was considered by him sufficient evidence for others to believe in him. You know someone God's changed? You don't need to know a thousand people God's changed. Many husbands have become changed because their wife is different. Not sinless, not perfect, but whoa. Many wives have been changed because that husband is different. 
and they can't explain it except supernatural. There was one man that was lame that was healed and confronted the whole Sanhedrin. And remember that poor woman that Samaria had five husbands. She'd gone through five men, gave up on marriage, was living with the one she was with. Didn't want to try marriage anymore. She married four losers. And Jesus knew all about her, gave her the gospel. And she went into the city, changed. A whole city got saved because of one woman. What Jesus did for one woman. A woman they all despised. A woman they all hated. They didn't need to preach her. They needed the woman. <laughs> and in those days, a loose woman was really despised, even by people that took advantage of her. Just totally unfair. And if the response of the crowds, last, last point, if the response of these crowds was not sufficient of criticizing Jesus saying he's in the power of the devil or putting it off. What is the right response? Well, go back in Luke and I'll show you. Look down in verse 27. This poor woman almost got it right. She came real close. And it came to pass as he spoke these things, a certain woman of the company stood up and lifted up her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. You must have had a really good mother. <laughs> now, by the way, God told Mary people say this about her. So this woman wasn't wrong about that, but she just lost her focus, right? So she was kind of right, but not quite there. And then Jesus corrected her. Yea, rather, blessed are those that hear the word of God and keep it. Both of those are present, active participles. Blessed are those that are hearing the word of God and are keeping it. Now, none of us do that perfectly, right? It comes back to what? Letting God's word do the work, not the preacher. You just hear the preacher, you're not... <laughs> Oh, I heard Pastor Hickson. It was a long sermon. <laughs> and, you know, you heard the preacher. said a couple things interesting. The rest turned me off. Hearing the preacher won't do it. It's when you hear God. It's like a man that got saved and the preacher said, What was it in my sermon that uh, helped you? Well, it wasn't your sermon. It was your text. <laughs> I like that. Here's the verse you read. Those that are hearing the word of God and keeping it. May God help us to hear the word of God and be keeping it. I've ignored the Bible my whole life. Haven't been interested in it. I had a Bible when I was at OU and it was right on my desk. And it got awful dusty because I never opened it. I had one though. I had one. How many times did I open it? Um, my freshman year, zero. My sophomore year, zero. My junior year, zero. And then God got a hold of me my senior year. And I thought, why haven't I been reading this book before? What's the matter with me? Not that I understood it. I mean, I was struggling to get it. Get about 10%. The 10% was better than nothing. 
But if you've never had any interest in the Bible, everything else is interesting to you, not this book. It, it can become what it's never been to you. When you hear about God that loves you more than yourself, and you hear how great He is and how good He is, and what He's done, then salvation's a free gift. You can't earn it. It's not on the merit system. It's all on what Jesus did for you and not what you do for Him. All these misconceptions of religion. Oh, it's a bunch of rules in an old book. All this stuff goes away. And it becomes a greater blessing and a greater joy than you've ever found anywhere. We're born again by the Word. The Word of God. You avoid the Word, you're not going to be born again. When I went to Bible class my senior year at OU, I think I got maybe 5% of what the preacher was saying. The rest of it just went right by. But I thought, 5%, that's better than nothing. I didn't know what, I, didn't, I couldn't even look up half the passages. I didn't know where they were. So I kind of looked through the 66 books and got some idea where they were and went back the next week. And it got another 5%. But pretty soon it was 10. And after a few months it was 20. And then 30. And I still don't understand a lot of it. And I've been teaching it for 50 years. But it's wonderful. It's more exciting than any sinful behavior I ever engaged in. It's more exciting than any thing out there. There's nothing greater than this. Jesus knew that and he wants you to know it. And this book helps us face reality about ourselves, about God, about Satan, about sin, about life. You don't want virtual reality. You don't want to spend your whole life in virtual reality. How about plain old fashioned reality Father we thank you that by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves it's a gift of God it's not of works lest anyone should boast the wages of sin is death but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord we've all earned the wages of, of sin and doesn't pay very well it always pays the same thing we think we're going to get something good and it's always death. But that gift of God, that wonderful gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've learned that politicians lie to us. We've learned that we live in a world of lies, deception. How precious it is to get God's truth. The light of the world is Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.